0: Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Dr. Sabina Lavrenouk is a human geographer at the University of Nottingham, studying the intersection of gender, health and activism in the global fashion industry. Previously a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow from 2017 to 2020 in the Department of Geography at Royal Holloway, Sabina now works on three feminist geopolitical projects covering women's safety, the gender impact of COVID-19 and repression in sweatshops. Throughout these three projects, Sabina has maintained a strong area focus on one particular country, Cambodia. Today, we're here to discuss inequality and activism in the Cambodian garment sector and specifically Sabina's role as a co-investigator in the research project Refashion. Thanks for joining us today, Sabina. Can we start at the beginning? What did you start out studying and how did that take you to where you are today?
1: Yeah, well, a lot of people ask me this question, you know, why Cambodia? How did I end up researching the garment industry there? And actually, the answer to this takes me right back to my undergraduate days when I was uh, finishing up my bachelor's degree at Durham. And I was thinking about what would I do next? So I had kind of a long-standing interest in social justice and global issues. Uh, and I had this plan to to move on and do maybe a master's in development studies. But I had probably a naive idea, or, or maybe you could call it an ethnographer's instinct if, you, if I wanted to be kinder to myself. That um, I didn't just want to study or theorise about development in a very abstract way, but to somehow kind of get up close or confront it from the inside. So I went to study for two years at the Royal University of Phnom Penh in Cambodia to read for a master's in um, development studies at the Faculty of Development Studies there. Um, so I've been to Cambodia previously for my summer holidays at university. uh, And it was such a fascinating and and friendly place. It was so full of history and culture and politics. And although it was, you know, at the time emerging from a very difficult place in its history, um, it seemed so full of optimism. The United Nations had pumped billions into Cambodia's post-war recovery. And it seemed like it was working. Um, You had this very dynamic economy creating what the World Bank described as the decade of Miracle economic growth where growth rates were averaging more than 10% a year. And so Cambodia had kind of become this poster boy of post conflict transitions. So it was a really timely place for someone interested in the politics and the mechanics of international development. And the development studies faculty at the RUPP at the time was run by a mix of international and Cambodian academics, one of whom was uh, an English anthropologist. and Professor Pilgrim had some uh, funding from Canada to do a project on the intersections of urban migration and natural resources management and rural poverty. Uh, And so he invited me to come and uh, work as a research assistant on his project. So I led a component of the research looking at urban migration in Phnom Penh, the capital city of Cambodia. So I was meeting with uh, workers there and I was interviewing them about their life histories and their experiences of work in the city. So this was really around the height of Cambodia's garments boom. Um, and so many of these urban migrants in Phnom Penh were garment workers. Uh, and I guess the rest, as you say, is, is history. After that project finished, I went back to London, did my PhD at King's, where I picked up on these themes of urban work and inequality. Uh, and since then, I've just been leading various research projects, usually focused on women working in the garment sector.
0: And that's taken you to your current project, which is Refashion. Can you tell us what that's about?
1: So Refashion is a research project funded by the UK's Global Challenges Research Fund, tracking the impacts of COVID-19 on a cohort of 200 female workers in Cambodia. I return to Cambodia quite often for field work. I was actually in Cambodia in um, January to March 2020 when we kind of started to see the impacts of COVID-19 on the garment sector there. In the beginning, in January 2020, all we knew was there was this mysterious virus in China, but it was causing a big problem for the garment sector because most of the imports of fabric actually come from China. Because the imports couldn't get through, uh, because a lot of facilities in China were closed down, it was having a really big impact on factories in Cambodia. There was no material, so workers couldn't work and they were being suspended temporarily. Obviously, things got gradually worse then in May 2020 when consumer lockdowns in places like the UK and the US started to have an impact and global brands actually started cancelling orders with factories uh, in Cambodia. So we ended up in a situation where up to half of Cambodia's uh, one million workers were out of work at the peak of the crisis. There's very little social protection to help these workers get through any any period of unemployment. Um, And so our research began to kind of track and, and document the impacts of this crisis on workers' everyday lives, looking at their kind of financial security and also their their household wellbeing.
0: So part of the project is about amplification. What do you hope to achieve by amplifying their experiences?
1: Well, workers in the global garment and footwear industry currently get a pretty raw deal, uh, and we basically want to change that. There are nearly 75 million people around the world making clothing and shoes for the world's leading brands. 80% of those workers are women, um, but they face daily violation of basic Human and labour rights. Even though the fashion industry is worth $2 trillion every year, or about 2% of global GDP, workers are rewarded for their efforts with very low wages, with very long hours, um, very hazardous conditions, and few social protections to help them cope if anything goes wrong. The UK Parliament recently conducted an investigation into the social and the environmental costs of our cheap clothing. And, you know, they agreed that the fashion industry operates on a model of unsustainable overproduction and overconsumption that's based on the globalisation of indifference to the needs of manual workers in the global supply chain. And in part, this is because these women workers are often invisible to us. Although these women are vital to our everyday lives, we actually know very little about the women who make our clothes and shoes. Without any data on these women, the problems that impede their quality of life and making a living challenging are not fully known and therefore they're very hard to address. So the goal of the project really is to tell the stories of women in order to amplify those experiences and and hope that policymakers take note and make concrete changes that will lead to tangible change in the quality of life for women in the global garment and footwear industry.
0: And what type of manufacturing are we talking about for these female workers in Cambodia? Do they stitch specialist garments or is it mass production?
1: Cambodia actually operates at the low end of the garments value chain uh, and it specialises in what we call cut, make, trim production. The designs for the clothing uh, and the fabric that actually make the clothing are made elsewhere and then they're brought to Cambodia. Um, So when they arrive at the factory, Cambodian workers basically just cut out the shapes Then they stitch them together to make the clothes. Then they add all the tags and the labels and the other trimmings. So the clothes actually ship from Cambodia in hangers, on boxes, ready for retail staff to just unpack and hang on shelves. We say it's at the low end of the value chain because typically there's not much value added or much profit gained from the process of actually making the clothes. The brands and the retailers who design and sell the final products are the ones who make the most money. These are usually big uh, multinational countries from richer countries, places like the UK or the EU or the US. So the worker in somewhere like Cambodia might earn 10 or 20p for making a £30 t-shirt, but the brand who designs and sells it might make £4 profit. So we're talking very much about mass production. Some of the workers in our research project might handle 100 or 150 items of clothing per hour well, they don't make the whole item, um, so they don't make, for example, a whole T-shirt. But each worker by themselves is responsible for a specific task in putting the T-shirt together. So they might be responsible, for example, for cutting out the sleeve or for stitching on the collar. So each worker might cut a hundred sleeves an hour or stitch on one hundred and fifty collars. But mass production doesn't always mean the cheapest brands as well. So the whole kind of spectrum of UK retail is present in places like Cambodia. Um, so in our study, we've got the fast fashion protagonists like Zara and Primark. We've got spots where giants like Adidas and Nike being produced by the women in our sample. But we've also got designer and luxury brands like Michael Kors.
0: We've talked a bit about social protection, and you just mentioned that there's been a globalisation of indifference to garment workers. What is social security, and is it governments or businesses that are responsible for it?
1: Well, social protection is a human right. Article 22 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says that everybody as a member of society has the right to social security. Um, And achieving that right to social protection is also a key target of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The Sustainable Development Goals call for countries to guarantee a basic level of social security for everybody. Uh, And that basic level of social security is sometimes called a social protection flaw, and so this social protection floor is basically a set of guarantees that mean over the life cycle everybody has access to things like essential health care and basic income. So it typically the social protection floor as defined by the ILO includes four main guarantees. It includes access to health care, it includes basic income security for children who obviously can't or shouldn't work and earn their own income, basic income security for persons in older age who again often can't work and earn their own income. And it also includes basic income security for adults in working age who are unable to work or earn a sufficient income. So, for example, if they're sick or if they're unemployed or if they're disabled. But although it's a human right, the ILO estimates that only 45% of the global population is actually covered by at least one of these basic social benefits. Um, And only 29% of people worldwide have comprehensive social security systems. At present, in the garment sector in Cambodia, the employers and the employees share the cost of social security. So workers pay into a fund called the National Social Security Fund, which by paying in a monthly contribution, which is a percentage of their wage, the employer makes a, a contribution and the worker makes a contribution. The worker then is entitled to a set of rights. Um, currently in the Cambodian garment sector, workers have a right to health care Uh, and they have a right to basic income security when they're sick. But some of those other provisions that would be included in a social protection floor are missing, particularly, for example, the right to basic income when they're unemployed. So this is why social protection became a huge issue during COVID-19. When millions of workers were put out of work on a short or longer-term basis, often they didn't have those social security guarantees that could help them cope through this period of crisis.
0: And a lot of your findings were revealed by ethnographic research. Can you explain what that is?
1: Um, Sure. Ethnography is a qualitative research method in which a researcher studies a particular group or a particular phenomenon by immersing themselves in it to try and understand it better. Typically, what differentiates ethnography from other qualitative research methods is that when we're doing ethnography, we try to embed ourselves in a specific place or in a specific community for a period of time. And we try more actively to observe uh, and participate in that setting to try gain kind of an insider's perspective. We want to see or share experiences with the people there so we get a deeper insight into shared cultures and shared conventions and the kind of economic and social dynamics of that place.
0: And from... That ethnography, generally speaking, has the garment industry recovered after COVID 19?
1: The simple answer to that question is yes, but no. Generally, retail demand is back to kind of pre pandemic levels. That means that brands are placing orders again with supplier factories, and production in Cambodia is almost back to full swing. But for workers, the recovery has been slower. Because workers have now had kind of two years out of work where they have been earning uh, much less than they would usually be accustomed to, they've kind of racked up large amounts of debts um, over that period. So those sacrifices that they've made in these two years are now still kind of impinging on their quality of life in the current period. But another thing that we've noticed through our research, through this longitudinal Uh, research that we've been conducting is how working conditions in the industry have themselves changed under COVID-19. So one of the areas that we've noticed this in is around the precariousness of work. So before COVID-19, workers in Cambodia could have one of two types of contract. They could have a permanent contract with a factory or what we call a fixed term contract with a factory. So they have limited employment rights. They have a contract that lasts only three or six months This is really difficult for workers because obviously it means it's very difficult to do things like form a union and stand up for your rights in the factory because if you do these things the employer can let you go after three or six months and there's very little you can do to um, contest that because your contract expires. If you have an unlimited contract you have much more bargaining power in the factory because the employer can't dismiss you if you complain about some of their practices. What we've noticed under COVID-19 is there's been a shift to even more precarious forms of labour contract where workers actually work on a daily wage basis, often with no term of contract at all. They just turn up to work and they get paid by the day. So they get $10 a day, which kind of compares favourably to um, a worker on a longer term contract on a fixed duration contract or, or a permanent contract, because they earn about $190 a month now as the minimum wage. But workers are on day-wage contracts only get their daily wage, so they don't get any of the same bonuses and benefits that workers on fixed-term or permanent contracts get. So, for example, they don't have the right to pay into the National Social Security Fund, so they don't earn entitlements to things like free healthcare through their work. One of the reasons that these day-wage contracts have been proliferating is because there's also been an increase in the use of subcontracting facilities by garment manufacturers So actually in Cambodia, there are almost two different tiers of factories. There are the factories that produce directly for export manufacturing. So these are the factories that give the products directly to the brands that we mentioned earlier. There's a second tier of factories that we call subcontracting factories that often take orders from the bigger factories at times when the bigger factories have got too many orders to fulfill these subcontracting factories give the products to the big factories and the big factories then give the products onto the brands. The problem with these smaller factories is that they're not included in any of Cambodia's labour monitoring uh, operations, so conditions in those factories are often worse. So if a bigger factory gave a worker a day-wage contract arrangement, often the labour monitoring body would, would call them up on it, but no-one's inspecting the smaller factories, so a lot of these labour rights abuses go unnoticed.
0: As well as those uh, precarious labour contracts, another issue is political instability. Since 1999, am I right in saying that Cambodia is an extraordinary example of democratisation and stability? You mentioned earlier that the country was described as having a decade of miracle economic growth. Is that correct?
1: Um, well, far from it. Cambodia's Prime Minister, Hun Sen, has been in power since 1985. So that's more than 37 years now. And that actually makes him, I think, the Fifth longest serving head of state in the world. But Cambodia has struggled to manage the sometimes competing demands of stability on the one hand and democratization on the other. So, since he came to power those three decades or more ago, Hun Sen's government has, as you say, delivered this very strong record of economic growth. So, in fact, Cambodia has been consistently one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Before the pandemic arrived, GDP growth was still increasing by a steady 7% every year. And this strong growth is largely down to the economic success of the garment sector. The garment sector is Cambodia's largest formal industry. It provides work for nearly a million people out of Cambodia's total population of about 16 million people. And it accounts for about 75% of all Cambodia's exports. But the benefits of this economic growth have not been shared very equally in Cambodia. While a small number of people have gotten very rich under Sen's rule, most ordinary people haven't benefited to the same extent. So if we take garment workers, for example, during the period from 2000 to 2013, while those miracle economic growth rates were soaring, the minimum wage for workers in the garment sector was static at $45 a month. This was already below what we would call a living wage. So below the amount of money that a worker needs to be able to meet the cost of basic needs for themselves and their family, for things like food, for things like housing and clothing. And then, because of inflation, the prices of things were going up all the time. So this means the real wage rate, the real wage rate is what workers can actually buy with the money they earn. The real wage rate was actually going down. So during this huge period of economic success workers were actually getting poorer and poorer. And you can imagine the outcome. In 2013, the trade unions called a national strike to demand a rise in the minimum wage, and more than 100,000 workers came out onto the street to protest. But at the same time, the main opposition party in Cambodia almost managed to pull off a shock result in the 2013 general election because there were so many people who were kind of discontent with this unequal economic trajectory. That party won 45% of the vote and it took nearly half of the seats in Cambodia's National Assembly. The government was therefore very clearly worried about the threat to its power and since then has launched what it calls a crackdown uh, on forms of dissent. It quashed the 2013 strike by sending in military police uh, who actually killed five striking workers in January 2014 and that effectively ended the protest. They have closed down many independent newspapers and radio stations. They've placed new limits on the ability to protest. They've stepped up monitoring of online spaces that people use to exchange ideas and information like Facebook. There are new restrictions on organizations like trade unions and NGOs and CSOs. And finally in 2017, um, the leader of the main opposition party himself was arrested and the Supreme Court dissolved and banned the party. So the last time that Cambodia had a general election in 2018, Cambodia actually became a one-party state. The government won 125 out of 125 seats in the National Assembly, but only because that main opposition party wasn't there on the ballot for people to vote for. So yes, Sen has managed to secure political stability for the time being, but only through a tightening authoritarian grip So that poster boy of the post-war transition that I talked about earlier has now become something of a pariah.
0: As a follow up question, will automation rather than the political turmoil we've been talking about or a global pandemic ultimately threaten the garment industry in places like Cambodia?
1: It's a good question and it's something that a lot of people worry about. But I think right now we don't have a clear answer to it. Automating factories is going to be a hugely costly endeavour. Um, At the moment, labor costs for making clothes are really cheap. And ultimately, it's this uh, cost that is the thing that brands and retailers and suppliers care about. It's very unlikely that replacing all of these very cheap workers with very expensive machinery is going to prove cost efficient over the longer term. So I'm not sure about the timescale in which it's feasible that automation will take over manual labor as the main source of much of our cheapest clothing.
0: If you could ensure one outcome from refashion, um, what would it be?
1: So right now, workers in Cambodia have very little legal protection afforded under UK law. Even though they make clothes for UK brands to sell in UK shops to UK consumers, because they live and work and make in Cambodia, they don't have very much legal protection. Um, instead, the global clothing or footwear industry is mostly regulated by voluntary codes of practice, that are created by the companies themselves. As consumers, people like you and me, have become concerned about the social and the ethical impacts of global trade, a lot of companies have made these voluntary codes of practice. They're essentially corporate promises about how they're going to look after workers better. But there's no one to check if they actually keep those promises and there's no one to punish them if they don't. Governments just essentially trust that global companies are going to be responsible businesses and they're going to look after their Workers overseas. But what we saw during COVID-19 is that this did definitely not happen. When the crisis hit, most brands just ditched their promises. They chose to protect their own profits over the people who work in their supply chains. So COVID-19 basically proves that these forms of voluntary regulation, these uh, codes, are not enough to safeguard workers. And as a result, we're now starting to see piecemeal change in parts of the world. So the German government, for example, has passed a due diligence law that legally requires German companies to identify, to prevent, and to address human rights abuses that occur within their supply chains. And we'd like the UK to do something similar. Next month, we're going to have an event at the UK Parliament where we're going to share these stories that we've collected from Cambodian workers during the pandemic, And we're going to use these to ask MPs to give the UK the power to punish and fine our companies who don't behave responsibly towards their workers overseas.
0: Finally, moving from the global and global companies and zooming into the individual, how can listeners modify their clothing habits? I saw in one of my local shops that you can now uh, rent designer clothes, as an example. And how can individuals support sustainable fashion in places like Cambodia?
1: So, this is another good question, and another question that I get asked a lot. But unfortunately, there isn't uh, an easy or simple answer. You've heard from the UK government that the problem with fashion is the overconsumption and the overproduction of clothing. This is not just an issue of social sustainability, but also environmental sustainability. We estimate that the global clothing and footwear industry contributes around 8 to 10 percent of. Global emissions. This is more than uh, shipping and aviation combined. So there's a real social and environmental problem at the heart of the fashion industry. The simple solution really is that we should all buy less. But the question then is what would happen to Cambodian workers if we buy less? Didn't we just try that out during the pandemic and COVID 19 and it went disastrously? Um, and the answer is. Yes, of course, but that wasn't kind of a planned solution to this problem. Ultimately, I think what we need is to make sure we pay workers in Cambodia more to produce less. So their wages could go up. We buy less, we buy better quality. And that would have a great impact on the social and the environmental sustainability of the fashion industry as a whole.
0: It's been so interesting to talk to you today. Thank you very much for joining us, Sabina.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.